Now, if you have uh, had the joy like we have of being here all year long through the year of community, you kind of wrap up and you say, well, how'd it go? Was it helpful? Uh, I, I, I don't know the true transformation. All I know is that it was healthy for our church. I know that if you were here all year long, this is the ninth book of the Bible that we're covering chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and you can't go through that much scripture without being changed. And so I believe that our church has been dramatically changed in this year of community. And I think it's been very effective. As we turn the corner into the next year, next time we meet together, it will be 2008. And that will be the year of world impact. We are going to take it now outside the walls. And as much as community is about reaching out, we didn't do outreach as much as we should have. So that's going to become our prime directive. As we hit next year, talking about reaching out to our neighbors personally, reaching out to our community as a church, and reaching out to those around us. So that's going to be our theme for next year. We have a number of books that are on charted to uh, be covered next year. It's going to be kind of an exciting year. So I'd hope that you would join us all year long and invite people that need to hear about the Word of God. Um, today, however, I want to begin with sharing a quote by John MacArthur with you. It's on your handout sheet. He said this, there is no place in the body of Christ for an individualism that does not care about others. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Never are we more like Christ than when we pay someone else's debt so that reconciliation can take place. Today we're covering the book of Philemon. It's called Healers is today's lesson, talking about restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation and relational transformation let me share with you that this is coming at a rather crucial time christmas is a time when depression seems to be at a height why it sounds kind of weird why during a happy time of year would depression be the highest well i'm sure that part of it has to do with the fact that it's winter winter does have an impact the cloud cover does have an impact on our emotional state of mind. Yeah, a lot of people are really impacted by winter months, but I think it's more than that. I think it's failed expectations. That's what I think it is. I think that around Christmas time, you finally start going, I'm going to see the people I want to see. I'm going to get the things I want to get. Things should be looking up. And when they don't happen the way you want them, it all falls apart and you end up feeling miserable. Your expectations are here and life comes in somewhere down here. And that makes it very difficult to keep moving forward. Well, when you are depressed, there's a darkness that descends upon the earth and you begin to realize all the things in your life that have failed you, the people that have failed you. And you begin to see the underground resentment and bitterness that is lying dormant all year long suddenly begin to seep through the ground. And rise up in your life and you're thinking, I didn't realize I was so bitter. I didn't realize I was so angry at everybody. I had no idea that I was wrestling with this much rage. What a perfect time to have God address the issue of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of relational transformation, than a time exactly like this. But I get it. Forgiveness is hard. As a matter of fact, in my estimation, just personally, forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things that Christianity calls us to do. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not going to give you the textbook on how to forgive, but I will tell you today a way to make it easier to forgive. I know I got that. Because I know how it can be harder and I know how it can be easier and I can share that with you. I can talk about the heart of forgiveness 
But what I think is necessary for us to chew on this morning is to fill in the blank in front of you, and it is this. Forgiveness is the heart of God. Forgiveness is the heart of God. The story that we're going to read today dwells on forgiveness. It dwells on someone that comes at a crossroads with what are you going to do with someone that has harmed you. And it deals with an even deeper underlying issue of how do you treat your brother in Christ. And we're going to discuss the issue of slavery today because in the book of Philemon, it's probably the most clear book in Scripture that talks about that topic. And so we'll address all of that. If you haven't turned with me already, could you turn with me to the book of Philemon? Philemon is in the New Testament. It's a little tiny, tiny book. It's hard to find. Page 845, it is right after Titus, which is tiny too. That doesn't help. It's after the Timothys. It is right before Hebrews. Hebrews is probably your best place to track it down. Go right before Hebrews and you hit Philemon. Philemon is just one chapter, so I'll just give you the verses, but we're going to start in verse 1, page 845. In the Bibles that were handed to you, page 845. But as you know, we can't get into a book of the Bible without understanding a little bit about it. So let me give you a little bit of an intro to this. Philemon is unique. It's odd in a couple different ways. One is that Paul the Apostle, who writes this book, has written at least 13 books in the New Testament. This is his shortest. He wrote a number of what's called prison epistles, meaning he wrote them from jail. This is a prison letter. And none of them are addressed to an individual except this one. So, we wrestle with that. What do we learn from this stuff? It was written about AD 62. So, if you think that Jesus died around, let's say, um, AD 35 or so, we are now about 30 years beyond the death of Christ. Paul is now about 56 to 60 years old. He's in his first imprisonment in Rome, and he's writing two letters at the same time. He writes the book of Colossians and this letter to Philemon. They go out in the mail at the exact same time. The same guys carry them to the same locations because this letter is going to Colossae, the exact same place that Colossians is going to. Written from Rome, going to Colossae. Colossae is a completely, I had an opportunity to go visit it a number of years back. It's completely covered. It's not dug up archaeologically at all. It's just one huge heap of dirt. There's one rock exposed. That's about all you got. So as I covered through, this is in the whole Mediterranean area, the whole idea of the modern-day Turkey, all right, modern-day Greece, this similar area. But the reason for writing this is a very simple story. So let me tell you the story. A number of years prior to the writing of this letter, Paul was doing some work in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is probably was one of my favorite places to visit. It's a rather amazing sight to go see. It's a beautiful city as you see it uncovered. And as he's doing this work in this really large city, there was a bunch of issues that went on there. There was a riot because of Paul and there was all kinds of problems. But while he was there, he did an awful lot of ministry and he spent a considerable amount of his time ministering there. Well, he came across a man that was also there probably for business. That man's name is Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy businessman. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates he was ever in full-time ministry. This is just a regular guy that's wealthy. They come in contact with each other, and Paul witnesses to this guy, and the guy ends up getting saved. He becomes a Christian. 
he establishes a relationship, a rapport with Paul. They become friends, but he has to go back home. Home is in Colossae, a different city. As he goes back home, he either joins the church that already existed or helps to start out the church, but he opens his house and they start having church at his house. So as they're all hanging out in his house, he's got a family that's probably involved in the ministry, but he is also a slave owner. You look at that and you go, wait a second, hold on. So Christian guy is slave owner. How does that work? I don't know. Let's go through a lot of the founding fathers of this country. I think they did the exact same thing. It hasn't been that long. How does that work? Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. So one of the slaves that he owns was a man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus was named, that's a very common name for a slave at the time. Why? Because it means useful. So they would just rename him. The master would go, this is my guy, useful. Apparently there's other guys that were called, this is a not useful guy. I don't know what that means in Greek, but Onesimus means useful. One of his slaves, that no matter how nice Philemon was, for some reason, maybe it was just to secure his freedom, he bails out and takes off. Now, you can't do that in Roman society. In the time of Paul's day, Rome and the Roman Empire was majority slave. They had bounty hunters that would go hunt you down and bring you back for a price. They were slave chasers. And they would go out and try to find you. So he was risking his life, for the penalty of leaving your master was death. This man risks all that, and he takes off, and he goes and tries to hide in a huge city by the name of Rome. Try to get lost in the crowds. Well, as luck would have it, as God ordains, who does he run up against? But Paul the Apostle, the same exact guy that his master ran up against. And guess what? He gets saved. So he comes to a knowledge of Christ. They establish a very deep bond. As a matter of fact, in this letter, Paul will call Onesimus my son in the Lord. He only ever uses that two other times. Of Timothy, his protege, and Titus, the closest men to him. They become intimately tied in in ministry where they're doing stuff together and they're they're working through and Paul's getting thrown in prison and they're sweating it out together and they're hanging and they're doing all the rough ministry stuff. And then at some point, I don't know whether or not Onesimus shares with them the full story or whether or not he already knew the story and he found that it was time in his maturity to do so, but they have a sit down. The sit down was Onesimus, you know you got to go home, right? What do you mean go home, Paul? I'm, I'm working with you. Why do I got to go home? Because in Christianity, we seek restitution and we try to make what we have done wrong right. And you know that's what we do. But but he can kill me. You know that, Paul. You know that under law, I'm a dead man. You know I have no rights. Ah, I won't let you go alone. I know Philemon personally. He's a friend of mine. I'll write you a letter and I will stand in the gap. I will shield you. I will not allow you to be taken out. Is it a risk? Yes. But it's a risk we must do together. That is the scenario for our story. If you haven't already turned there, please turn there to Philemon, page 845. Let me just read the first three verses. We'll pray for the word. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we ask that you would supernaturally open up the word of God that we might understand. And not only that we would understand, but that we would apply. Therefore, Lord, we need your power to do the impossible. And that is to forgive those who have harmed us. That we would reconcile with not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but those of the world. And Father, that we would treat people differently because of who we are in you. Would you allow us to leave free? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ancient letters started out with very similar formats. You start out with who wrote it, and then who you're writing it to. Then why? Well, it begins out. He said, my name is Paul. You know me really well. We're good friends, so I don't have to bring up the point that I'm an apostle. You guys remember that he is called the apostle out of time. Though he didn't walk with Jesus as one of his disciples, he was personally visited by Christ on the road to Damascus and launched into the ministry. He is a full-fledged apostle. He did miracles. He saw Jesus personally. All the factors of an apostle are right here in this man who wrote 13 New Testament books. But he doesn't drop that bomb. Actually, for the first time, the only time in his intro to a letter, he uses a different description I'm Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What do you mean a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Paul considered himself a slave to Christ, meaning he no longer owned himself, but Christ owned him. It's interesting that he talks about being a slave to Christ when he's about to refer to the issue of slavery. But more so than that, I think he's trying to point something out. He's saying, you know what, not only am I in here because I was sharing my faith and they didn't like it, and so they threw me in jail. My identity is wrapped up in Christ. And that's all I know. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Remember, that's Paul's protege. That's his apprentice. Whenever he needed to drop off from pastoral duties, he would hand it off to Timothy or someone he trusted. There's two letters written to Timothy in our scriptures. You can read those at some point. So those are the two guys that are writing it. Paul, his protege, and who are they writing to? To Philemon, our dear friend, that means beloved, and fellow worker. Once again, he lived in Colossae. The church met in his house. But then it mentions another name. To Apphia, our sister. Most scholars believe that to be Philemon's wife. Whether or not she was involved in leadership doesn't say. doesn't say anything about her. But now we have a woman's name. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. His name means master of the horse, which apparently back then was a good thing. Now it just sounds funny. Anyway, Archippus, they believe, most scholars believe, to be their son. So uh, Philemon and Apphia have a son named Archippus. Maybe he was the interim pastor. Maybe he was an interim leader. We don't know, but he was clearly involved in the ministry to some degree. And to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean the church that meets in your home? Do you guys understand that historically churches did not start meeting in separate buildings till 8200? So another 150 years after this letter. They always met in houses. Why? Well, they're little. When you're a little tiny church, you meet in the living room. That's what you do. When the church started growing in number and growing in size and growing in intensity, they started to have other buildings. And around AD 200, there was uh, uh, a discovery that then they began to have buildings with a stage and have a building where they could set out more people. 
But it was always in home churches initially. And so sure enough, here's a regular guy that just makes money. He's a good businessman. And he's supporting the church and his family's involved in ministry. Right? Why are all these people named? Did you notice we got Paul, Timothy, Apphia, Archippus, Philemon. Then if you go to the end of the book, there's another five guys. Luke, Demas, Epaphras, all these guys. It keeps going through. Why is everybody mentioned in a private letter? Why does he say to the church? Is he really want him to read his personal mail out in front of the church? Probably. Why? Well, we got two guesses. Accountability or gossip? Those are your two choices. Accountability. Imagine if you ask somebody, let's say somebody wrote me a letter, another pastor that was my mentor, let's say, and he said, you really need to forgive Russ. And then I read it out in front that my mentor just said, I have to forgive Russ. If I don't forgive Russ, you're all going to know. <laughs> Does that make sense? That's called accountability. So that could be it. Or the issue could have been gossip. Can you imagine if Onesimus comes walking back into town and everyone knows that that was his slave that ran away and should deserve death and now everyone's going to speculate as to why he's back home? Wouldn't it make more sense than to just read it out loud and go, hey, by the way, this guy got saved and I'm sending him back to you and here's a whole story. That way it just stops gossip. I don't know why it's read to the whole church, but it is. I'll tell you the other reason why, I think. Because bitterness as well as forgiveness impact a community. What do I mean? Well, let me ask you a very honest question. Do you think bitter people act different than forgiven people? Okay, is that pretty obvious? All right, then if we're all struggling with bitterness, 100% as a church, we're going to act different as the church, right? We're actually going to have different guards up. We're going to interact with each other different. We're not going to pray about the same things. We're not going to worship as freely. We are going to alter as a congregation based on our levels of bitterness or forgiveness. They impact your lack of forgiveness impacts me because I can only talk to you a certain way. Your forgiveness, maybe you've set someone free in your heart, allows me to give you more responsibility in the church because you're more free. In other words, the state of your heart bothers me. And my heart bothers you. I believe this is a community issue. I believe it's not individual. I believe that it's not just about us. And you go, who, who cares if I've forgiven my mom? She's long passed away. What do you mean, who cares? All of us care. Because you act different. And you're impacting our community. He moves on. Verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Two interesting things. One, as a leader, he prays for his people. I want you to know that I pray for you. I want you to also know that when you come by in the hallway and say, Hey, I have a surgery on January whatever. Will you pray for me? What am I going to say? Of course I'm going to pray for you. And then when you walk away, I forget. How do I remember? I run immediately to my office and I write it on a post-it note, a sticky note, and I stick it on my computer so I'll remember to pray for you. So we could just cut the middleman and you can run in and put a sticky note on me as you walk by. That would be easier. <laughs> hey, I got a prayer request. Boom, just stick it on my forehead. That'll be fantastic. And then I'll remember. The other thing that it tells me is that out of all of Paul's letters, the 13 letters in the New Testament, all of them mention Thanksgiving at the beginning except Galatians. In other words, Paul is a man of gratitude, man is a man of thanksgiving. He doesn't take things for granted. He doesn't forget what God has done, and that allows him to keep the joy in the midst of difficult, difficult situations. 
I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith, Philemon, in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Philemon's known for what? But faith and love. Are those not the cornerstones of Christianity? Faith and love. What better things to be known for? He's a man that loves people intensely. He's a man that believes intensely in Christ. I would hope that I'm a man that is known for my faith and for my love. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Do you believe that we should be accurate to the Greek? And if there is something in the Greek that we should point out, don't you think we should do that? Amen. I believe we should be accurate to the Greek. And that is why it is not the word heart. It is bowels. And I would like to point that out. That in Greek, it is you have refreshed the bowels of the saints, and I think that's important. Why? Because it's funny. That's why. No other reason than that. There we go. Amen. Praise the Lord. Back in the ancient world, the bowels were the seat of emotion, not heart, and so therefore they've changed the translation so we all don't snicker like little children like we just did. However, I'm not that mature. Moving on. Verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Okay, now, you're going to hear pressure all over the place from Paul. Every All these other commentators are like, Paul's so nice, Paul's so loving. I'm going, hold on. Paul is absolutely pressuring this guy to forgive his friend. How do we know that? Did you just see the phrase, I could totally make you do it? but I'm not. I just want to do it in love. And you're like, didn't you just kind of do it already? Yeah, kind of just pressured everybody because you're the big apostle. When you're the big dog and you say, I could force you to do it, you could really force him to do it. But he said, but I won't. You're like, but you kind of are. <laughs> Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Are you beginning to see this? He's like, and then, I don't know, I may die any day now. You don't have to. I'm just saying that if you don't before I die, well, I don't know. Okay, the guy's only 56 to 60. You're going, well, that's not old at all. And no, it's extremely young. However, in that day and age, people were dying at 60. So that was towards the end of their lifespan. But you got to think, who looked older at 60 than Paul? Come on, after you've been stoned to death and you've been shipwrecked three times, you've been beaten with rods, and I mean, yeah, you probably look a little bit harsh, okay? So everyone's going to go, man, what are you, like 99, 98? What are, and you're like, oh, I'm only 60. Oh, okay. You understand, you probably had a pretty rough life. He said, and I'm also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, meaning, oh, look at you going to Walmart whenever you want. You're all free. I'm in a prisoner. Come on, man. I'm chained to another guy all the time says this, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, that's a pretty extreme phrase, who became my son while I was in chains. Isn't it ironic that a slave met Paul when he was in chains? It's just irony at its best. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful to you and to me. That is kind of boring in English. It's really fascinating in Greek because this is what it says in Greek. Formerly, he was not Onesimus to you, but now he's become Onesimus, both of you and me. In other words, 
He wasn't fulfilling his name before, but now he's fulfilling his name to both of us. Onesimus means useful. Here's something that needs to be said. Paul is interceding for a man that couldn't solve his own situation. When you're a slave with no rights, you have no right then to go back to your master and say, you need to let it go. I'm a Christian now. It's cool. Everything's fine. No way. You have no right to do that. You have no right in the government's eyes. You have no right in relationship. Therefore, someone had to stand in the gap. Someone had to be a mediator. Someone had to do what Onesimus could not do. That man was Paul, the apostle, who had every right to do that. Are we not seeing the tie-in with Jesus Christ? When we sin against God, when we are sinners in nature, when we are depraved in the sense that we cannot save ourselves, there's something we cannot do. And only when Jesus came in as our mediator and did what we could not do by reconciling us to God were we then saved. In other words, you can't forgive anybody if it wasn't on the foundation that Jesus Christ died for you. His reconciliation of you allows you to reconcile with other people, right? Paul goes on in verse 12. I am sending him who is my very heart, just lays on more, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm the one in chains for the gospel. All right. In other words, I don't see you helping me out around here and I have a really helpful guy. Oh, that's right. I got to send him back to you. Right. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would be spontaneous and not forced. Okay. That's funny. Okay. Like, really? That's exactly how I feel right now. Verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. That word is usually translated for eternity. No longer is a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Let's talk about slavery. Why is it that Abraham Lincoln would stand up and say that slavery is wrong? Martin Luther King Jr. would stand up and say that slavery is wrong, and yet the Bible nowhere says that slavery is wrong. How's that possible? Why in the world, when you're living in a mindset or a world scenario where slavery is the norm, is the majority, do you not say, hey, stop having slaves? It never is in Scripture. Why? Well, there's guesses. I had this one uh, series of commentaries that I looked at, and they said, well... If Christianity would have done that, then it would have just become a hot-button issue, and Christianity would have been rejected as a riotous sect of Judaism, and Paul and Jesus never wanted to stir up that problem. Oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Everybody dies, right? Clearly, they're going to stir up a lot of garbage. No, they're not afraid to address the issue. Here's my guess. That from God's perspective, it doesn't matter. What are you talking about? What do you mean slavery doesn't matter? Of course slavery matters. What you're telling me that poor treatment of one human being by another doesn't matter to God. No, that's not what I said. I'm telling you that without slavery, we have poor treatment of one human being to another. That's always bothered God. But from God's eyes, whether a man is slave or free does not matter in his economy. 
God does not see slavery as holding any man down. God sees all men equally. God will always lift up every man the same. No, there is not going to be any difference. And the way that God says is He said, will you bring me into your situation? Whether you are poor or you are rich, does not matter to God. Will you bring me into your situation? See, God isn't about hitting the hot button topics. God is not a political tool. God goes deeper than that. And this is where we hit the issue of relational transformation. Christianity goes deeper than slavery. Christianity goes to the fact that since all men are equal, how dare you treat one man less than you? By nature of Christianity, if applied properly, it abolishes slavery. Because if it's applied rightly, there's no room for it. It doesn't have to hit the issue when it's trying to go deeper. It's trying to hit more topics. It's trying to hit more of the heart of man. It is not about trying to hit one issue, but all issues at the same time. Whatever you call it, mankind has been hurting each other every day. And it's not okay with God. Does Christianity have something to say about slavery? You better believe it does. It's unacceptable. And no man has that right over another. Amen? He says this. Going back to the pressuring, verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Do you think Paul's going to get a bill? I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, meaning not through his secretary. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Okay. Now, in other words, he's like, you'd have never been saved if I didn't minister to you. So, I don't know, you were going to eternal torment. All I'm asking is that you forgive this guy, right? You guys seeing the pressure? I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit, that word is Onesimus, I may wish that I could have some Onesimus from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. All right, that's pretty clear. Let me talk about the art of forgiveness. How do you make forgiveness easier? Well, let me give you a, a hint, I believe, that Scripture gives to us. And that is in a scenario. Let's say we are all in a village Let's say that we all have little tiki huts or whatever they are, right? We all have huts and they're little tiny things and and it, everything that we own is in our hut. And we don't have any cars. We basically have wagons. And this is where we all live. While we're all at church, some bad guys come. They sweep in through and they burn down our entire village. Do you think that would be hard to forgive them? Yeah, of course it would be. We'd be a little bit bitter. They just burn down everything we have built. They burn down everything that we existed in. They burn down our memories. How dare they? And yes, we would struggle with forgiveness. But then let's say that the greater community hears about it. They begin to come in and say they want to help us out. All of a sudden they bring in crew after crew after crew of rebuilding. They begin to build back our village, and every one of our houses are rebuilt, but not the way that they were, but twice the size. 
They began to give us more wagons, better wagons. Everything is organized. They began to do things we never even imagined. We never even asked them for. They began to rebuild our society, our community, and we are now hyper-blessed. Now is it hard to forgive those guys? No. Because you look and you go, I know what you tried to do, but now you guys look stupid and we got more stuff. It's a little bit easier, huh? Are we not seeing the tie-in? If you want it to be easier to forgive, let Jesus in to your past. Because he starts going in healing things. And he starts making gold out of garbage. And he begins to do things you never even asked or imagined. Now all of a sudden you used to have this much. Now you have twice as much. Now he begins to bless this and use your past to minister to current people. He begins to build a future ministry off the difficulty you have had. He begins to transform lives around you. He begins to use you to alter the world. Then is it easier to forgive? Oh, yeah. But if you hang on to that root of bitterness and never allow Jesus to get into the scenario, you remember nothing but the pain. As I look at it, I began to say, but what if God's your problem? What if you're mad at God? He's the one you got to forgive. Of course, you don't forgive God. God didn't do anything wrong. But from your perspective, He did. And you're still holding on to it. What do you do when your source of power is your problem? Then what? I can only encourage you and beg you to set Him free. Because I will suggest to you that I know Him well. And He is good. And He is on your side. And He is healing you. And He wants the best for you. And had there been anything He could have done, He would have done it. I know He disappointed you. I know He wasn't there when you wanted Him to be there. I know He didn't stop the pain when He asked Him to stop the pain. I know that He did not heal the one that you prayed for to be healed. But I will tell you this. Our God is good. I will tell you that from your vantage point, he looks like a bad guy, but he's not. And when you begin to see it from his vantage point, he loved you the whole time. But you're going to have to trust him on that. And you're not going to get the facts ahead of time. You have to forgive him now to be free. But what do you do when you're trying to forgive an offender who's still offending you? Right now. What do you do when there's still lobbing garbage over the fence at you? What do you do when it's a roommate, perhaps, that you have conflict with and they're consistently slandering you behind your back and every day you wake up and another friend tells you more garbage that was said about you? How do you forgive in the midst of the problem? Jesus did it. While he was being nailed to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. How do you get to the place to where it's natural that in the moment you're forgiving? Here's two suggestions. The first one is stop looking at it as all one incident and begin to look at it as individual incidents. What do I mean? I mean, we close the book on people when we go, that girl, she's just a whatever. We put it in there. It's, you know, she's a gossip. She's this. She's that. And we look at her as one total picture or him as one total picture as an abuser. And yet there's individual incidents. And when you re-engage with her or him the next time, 
God has been there. Therefore, they're not the same person. I know they still smell the same. I know they still act the same. But I'm telling you, we have to keep a hopeful attitude that someday God will begin to turn their hearts. Otherwise, we come bitter and we lock the door. Don't lock the door. The other reason that we can't seem to forgive in the midst of it is we think that we're going to let them off the hook. And we can't believe they would get off the hook and get away with a horrible behavior. Let me tell you something. Nobody gets away with anything. God was watching the whole time. No, it doesn't get swept under a rug. No, it's not like it never happened. God knows. But I will tell you this. You've got to realize that forgiving doesn't mean you're a doormat. Isn't that our major problem? I can't forgive you because then you're just going to do it again. Hold on a second. Forgiveness is not going back to the way things were. That's not the definition. Forgiveness is pretending as if it didn't occur. You go, what's the difference? Because if you knew then what you know now, you would have had proper boundaries in place. In other words, you don't hang out with everybody in this church, right? There are people that are your friends and there are people that are unsafe. Are there toxic people in this church? Are there people in toxic parts of their life where they are sliming you every day? Yeah, you don't hang out with them the same way. Why? Because you put in boundaries. Why? Because that's called healthy living. That's not unloving. It is loving because you're not enabling them. You're putting up boundaries, yeah? Yeah. Therefore, forgiving is pretending as if it didn't occur, but now with good boundaries, the way it should have been in the first place. Then, pretending it never occurred means you can now seek their benefit. You can now pray for those that persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Hope that God turns them around. Wish their best. Because now the proper boundaries are in place to where they're not harming you every day. But you still set them free. Is it possible? Yes. As a matter of fact, as a believer in Christ, I'll suggest it's probable that we will get there if we let God in. He closes with this in verse 22. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer your prayers. In other words, I'm coming for a visit. Get a room ready. So now you can imagine if he didn't forgive him, that's going to be uncomfortable. Because now Paul's coming over. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. That is the founder of the Colossae churches. Possibly the pastor that is now imprisoned with Paul. And so do Mark. Who's Mark? That's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. What's his name? John Mark. What's significant about him? Oh, that's right. Him and Paul didn't get along for a long time, but they're restored now. So now Paul's going, hey, look, Mark's here with me. How are you guys doing? (laughs) Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And with that, he closes. How did it turn out? I don't know. You really think that he had any other choice? No, but I got a challenge for you as we close. If you are at odds with someone in this room, you reconcile today. Don't let it go. I'm not reconciling. I'm not ready. They're not ready. All right. 
You can go ahead and hang on to the bitterness a little while longer. Let's see how that works out for you. Forgive. That means you place improper boundaries. And then you seek their benefit. Forgive. If they're not here in this room, and I'm talking about literally, if they're here in this room after the service, you go find them. You let them know. I am willing to try to reconcile. I may not be all there yet. I may not be totally mature. God may not be finished with me yet, but I want to seek to reconcile. I don't know what that means. I'm just telling you I'm willing. If they're not ready, let it go. You cannot force that. But if they're not in this room, call them. Call them today. You call them on the phone and you tell them the exact same thing. But if it's just words and you don't really believe it, don't do it. Because then you're just jerking them around. Don't do that. But if you really believe it, make the call. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for not only a challenge to our spirit, but also a refreshment about the fact that we know that you have stood in the gap that we might be reconciled with you. That you made it possible that we could be forgiven. That because of your overflowing grace upon us, we can extend grace to others. That because you went into our past and you redeemed it, we then can see the benefit and set our captors free. Lord, may we walk out of here free men and women. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.